Are you fulfilled in your life? Are you living a fulfilled life? Do you believe you know the purpose for your existence and every day you get to live for that purpose for which you were created? Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the senior pastor here at Bible Center. It's awesome uh, having you with us. I trust you've been blessed so far by the worship service as I have. And what an exciting opportunity we have to worship the chain breaker, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his good news that we call the gospel. If this is your first time with us, we're thrilled you're here. And we also want to welcome those who are joining us online. Every week, several hundred folks join us out of state or out of town uh, around the country. It's great having you with us as well. Next time you're in Charleston, uh, we'd love to have you right here. There's something about worshiping together, shaking hands, even if you're a germaphobe, just shaking hands, being together, and uh, sharing a cup of coffee with one another. So good to have you here. If you find yourself this morning struggling with your life's purpose, struggling to find fulfillment, to find meaning, I want to tell you you're not alone. There have been a number of times in my life where I've wrestled with certain purposes or certain directions, and usually those times are very dark. I remember on many instances or on several occasions being able to or having to stay up late, not being able to sleep because I was wrestling through things. There have been times where I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and not be able to go back to sleep, just struggling to find purpose or meaning for something taking place in life. And really the truth is all of us go through it from time to time. Usually that's when we find comfort in other things. Maybe it's a 48-hour binge watch on Netflix, or we bury ourselves in our work, or we bury ourselves in our food. And all of these things are addressed in Colossians chapter 3. I don't believe any stone is left unturned or any heart will be left impacted. And so this morning, I want to invite you to go with me to Colossians 3, and we're going to look at what is the Christian life, how do we live it, and why is it so important? What is the Christian life, how do we live it, and why is it so important? Let me invite you to stand as I read Colossians chapter 3 starting in verses 1 through 4. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you want to take notes, there's notes in your bulletin. You can also follow along on the app. I want to start today by addressing the question, what God is not saying. What is God not saying? Well, he's not saying, first of all, that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. The physical world, he's not saying it's bad, and he's not saying that only the spiritual world is good. This was a struggle for the Colossian church. They were being taught this brand of Christianity or this brand of religion that said only spiritual things are good, but physical things, they're not so good. We already addressed that in Colossians chapter 1 when we saw that Jesus was born as a human being. 
He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. We saw it in Colossians chapter 2 when Paul addresses the spiritual world and says the spiritual world isn't always friendly. Sometimes the spiritual world with the demons can be hostile to the things of God. And so to say that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good isn't always true. It depends on how they're used. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, after God created the heavens and the earth, he looked at his creation and he said, my creation is good. Jesus told stories about farming and fishing and flowers and birds and barns and baking. In 1 Timothy 4.4, the apostle Paul says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. If Jesus lived in West Virginia, and maybe in the new earth he just might visit, if Jesus lived in West Virginia, he'd have his favorite restaurant. He'd have his favorite coffee shop. He'd have his favorite trail through Canal State Forest. We would see more football miracles like we saw yesterday if Jesus lived in West Virginia. The physical is created by God, and if it's used for the glory of God, it is good. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 isn't teaching the physical is bad. So what is it teaching? Well, look with me in your notes. We're going to see that God is saying, you have eternal life, so live like it's so. This is a good summary of chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You have eternal life, so live like it's so. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, if you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have the resurrected life. The old is gone. The new has come. The Christians and Jews alike at this particular time period like to talk about the coming age, the new age. And Paul writes and says the new age is already here. The moment you put your faith in Christ, spiritually you are raised to eternal life. If you're looking for a good definition of eternal life, you can find it in John 17. Jesus said, this is eternal life that you know me and the Father who sent me. So eternal life isn't something used in the Bible just to describe eons of time, but eternal life is a quality of life. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you received a new heart, a new spiritual quality of life. And Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ. Now, if you're here today and you know you've put your faith in Christ, you could change that word if to since. You could read it that way. But if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus, our invitation to you is that today would be the day of your salvation. The whole book of Colossians has been about God's great big story of good news. It pointed us back all the way to the beginning of time as we know it, when God created the heavens and the earth. It was perfect. It was without sin. It was without flaw. But Adam and Eve chose to sin just as we would have chosen to sin had we been Adam and Eve. And so through their sin, the entire planet, the entire universe was plunged into decay and curse. Our sin has separated us from God. 
But the great gospel story that we saw in Colossians is that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins to pay the substitute for our penalty, for our sin that we could never pay. And one day, because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave the third day, he will make all things new. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the living God, who demands perfection of all humankind, sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserved to rise again, to ascend back into heaven, and to give forgiveness and righteousness and His Spirit and eternal life the moment we repent and believe. Paul says, if or since, if this is you, then the next few verses, these are written to you. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 2, he says, set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Where did Paul learn this language? You know, there wasn't a, a gospel of Paul different than the gospel of Jesus, but Paul learned everything from Jesus. And Paul's probably thinking of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to see throughout this passage. Really, Paul is giving us a summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5-7. through And so essentially, he is quoting what Jesus said in Matthew 6-33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In verse 1, he's dealing with the heart. In verse 2, he's dealing with the mind. And he says, set your affections, set your heart, set your mind on things above. Now, in this verse, when he says above, we Christians get kind of weird about this. And I realize when we think about God, we think about God being like up, right? And that's okay. It's why cathedrals for centuries were, were made so that when you walked in, you, you looked up. That's why I love our foyer. When you walk in, you just, just look up. People who've been here for the first time. But the word above isn't necessarily a direction. It's referring to eternal things. He's saying think not on just temporal things, but think on eternal things. Do you remember the first time you started thinking about eternity. Now, I can't remember the first time. I grew up in church. You know, the first stop was, was the hospital. The second stop was the altar. You know, you're still wet. Mom's bringing you to the altar. That, that's, I grew up in church. Maybe that was you or not you. So I can't really remember the first time, but I remember the first time that eternity really gripped me. And of all things, it was when my grandma died. I was 23, 24, and I'd started traveling as a youth evangelist, and I was up in Holland, Michigan, a few Michigan fans in here. I was in Holland, Michigan, and my dad called me, and it just blew me away. He says, your grandma died last night. And I remember thinking, I've preached on eternity, I've heard about eternity, and I just remember going down to the church lobby and just sitting there in the foyer watching people come in. They didn't know who I was. And just thinking, that person's going to live somewhere forever. That person's going to live somewhere forever. Remember that moment for you? 
So Paul says, think about eternal things, not not just earthly things. But in verse 3, he says, you have died. He's talking spiritually here. You died to your old person, your sinful nature. Uh, Yes, we have the flesh, but we died with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. The word hidden means tucked away, wrapped up in. The picture there is what we used to do with our kids. Remember when your kids were little, or if you have little kids, you ever wrap them up in a blanket? You know, they, they love to hide in a blanket, and you can hear their little voice, you can hear their little laugh, and they're all just wrapped up and tangled in a blanket thinking that because they can't see you, you don't know where they are. That's this picture. God says because your faith is in Jesus, you are hidden, you are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He is your identity. And we live in a world of labels, don't we? We have labels for this, labels for that, and often the labels stick to us. But God tells us that our labels aren't our identity. Who we are in Jesus, we're his child, that's our identity. Maybe you think your identity is executive. Things are going really, really well at work. And so your identity is, I'm an executive, I'm I have this title at work. Well, the problem is one day you'll no longer have that title. Very few people carry their titles to their death. So one day when you're no longer in that position and somebody else takes your place and you're no longer the big man on campus or the the leader at work, what's going to happen to your identity? Maybe it's the other way for you. Maybe you're wearing right now the tag of unemployed. And as a man or woman, you feel worthless, you feel discouraged, you feel like you're letting your family down, you're letting the world down, and you're wearing that identity. You're trying to find a job. This morning, your identity isn't unemployed. The truest thing about you is what Jesus says about you, and that is you are a child of God. Maybe you're wearing the title of, of health, healthy. You think that because you're healthy that somehow your identity is good. Well, maybe according to the world, maybe not so much. Since I've tried to start running, my girls uh, tell me that they think I'm like that character Rob Lowe on Parks and Rec. They're like, Dad, that is you. Uh, No, just because you're healthy doesn't give you a good identity. What if one day you get cancer? You break a leg. You're not able to go to the gym. That can't be your identity. Maybe you're unhealthy and you've been wearing that as your identity and you think, oh, I'm just so unhealthy, I'm this or I'm that. You know, the good news is God never designed our bodies to last forever. The healthiest person in this room is still going to die if Jesus tarries. And so your identity can't be wrapped up in your health. It can't be wrapped up in whether or not you're rich or you're poor. You won't take what you have with you. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul to the cemetery. Naked came you into the world, and naked will you leave the world. And if you're poor, that's not your identity. Your identity is what Jesus says of you. You're a student, and you think your identity is in your honors. Please don't let your identity be in your honors. If you're a student, you've always made straight A's and every semester you fret and sweat because you think you might make a B or you might make a C. Can I tell you what I hope for you? As your pastor, I love you, but I hope you make a B 
and I hope you make a C. I remember being in Bible college, and my goal was to get through school. Very few people, it's, it wasn't like West Point, but we thought it was like West Point. Very few people got all the way through school without any marks against them. I remember telling my uh, dorm supervisor, I'm going to go all the way through. I'm not going to have any marks against me. I didn't like what he said. He goes, man, I hope you get some marks. As a matter of fact, I think I might just give you some marks just so you get it out of your system. And often the pressure we put ourselves under because we want this identity. Maybe your identity is you think you're stupid. Your dad told you you're stupid. The world tells you you're stupid. Your friends or your family told you that's not your identity. Maybe you think your identity is you're an addict. Whatever stamp people have put on you, these things may be your struggle, but let the truest thing about you be that your life is hid with Christ in God. In verse 4, he reminds us that one day when Jesus appears, we're going to be resurrected. Resurrection is our hope. And so he wants us to live like it's so. How do we live like it's so? Practically, how do we make this a reality? If I have eternal life, how will I live? Well, last week, we saw that legalism isn't the answer. We went through Colossians chapter 2. If you haven't uh, heard the message, you can watch it or you can listen to it online or on the app. We talked all about legalism, which is a big struggle here in our part of the state, maybe all of Appalachia. But I received a number, almost all, just some really encouraging words last week about how that you purposely let it apply the message to your own life, which is great. I'm still trying to do that to my life. Even this week, I'm thinking, wow. I need to go back and listen to that, listen to my own message uh, from last week. So I got a lot of great notes, but a couple of you asked a really good question, and I love this. One of the guys in my running group asked me, he says, hey, okay, I'm totally with you on what you, uh, what you preached and what you taught on Sunday. You told us what spirituality isn't, but what is spirituality? You said it, what it's not, so what is it? How does God expect us to live? That's a really good question. And the way God wrote this book is that he tells us what it's not in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he tells us what it is. You say, well, I'm a Christian. If I'm not a legalist, does that mean I can do whatever I want to do? And the answer, of course, is obviously no. Uh, We learned last week we're no longer under the Old Testament covenant. Uh, We're no longer under the Mosaic law. So those 613 laws that were applied to Moses, we're not under any of those 613. A few of those laws are applied to the New Testament. They're repeated. And so if it was wrong to kill in the Old Testament, God says it's still wrong to do murder in the New Testament. But if we're not under the Old Covenant, what does the New Covenant teach us? And Paul's going to tell us what that is starting in verse 5. How does God expect me to live? Or how will I live if he's given me a new heart? In verse 5, he tells us, First of all, I'll try to fight the evil in my heart. I'll try to fight the evil in my heart. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And there's a colon. Again, earthly doesn't mean that you drive a Ford or a Chevy or wear Levi jeans. That doesn't mean earthly. He's about to tell us what he means by earthly. And it's going to get really specific. But this idea in verse 5 of put to death, if you're taking notes, it means to kill. 
It means to fight or mortify, put to death, execute. Reminds me of the great Puritan quote from John Owen. He says, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What are we supposed to fight? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. First of all, sexual immorality. If you're taking notes, that's the Greek word pornea, from we get our word pornography. Put to death sexual immorality. You know, yes, we are not under the Mosaic law, and we don't have a hundred standards to live by that men have written, but God still calls us to holiness. And this idea of sexual immorality applied to the church at Colossae just as much as it applies to us today. This is where men and women are living in 2017. Now, it's important to go back and acknowledge that sex was not invented by the devil. The devil didn't one day say, I'm going to invent something that's really going to trip people up. No, the devil can't invent anything. God created sex. It is a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about how awesome God is. The very first command that he gave to man and woman was get naked and have sex. That's the translation for be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the same thing. What a great God we serve. That is amazing. It is a gift. It's never been intended just to be given partly to another person, but it was always intended to be given as all, as we give ourselves to one another. We give ourselves physically. We give ourselves legally. We give ourselves emotionally, which is why sexual unity can only take place, should only take place in the bond of marriage. For us to give ourselves physically without giving ourselves legally and emotionally is to defraud the other person. And so sex is a gift from God. Husbands, give your wife the very best of yourself. Do not give yourself in part to your wife and in part to what you look at on your phone when nobody else is around. If you struggle with pornography, have an accountability brother in your life that they can look at your phone at any time. They can disable your private browsing. They can look at your history. Have somebody that holds you accountable. You say, but Pastor Matt, it's innocent. It's not hurting anybody. It's hurting yourself, and it's not glorifying to God. Give your best to your wife. If you have a business route that you take, and there's certain cities that you visit, and there's somebody in those cities that you can call, or you have called, or you have a relationship with that other woman or that other man, please stop it. Please stop it. Get some accountability. Go to counseling. Get some help and say, I want to fight this because I believe my marriage is worth it. Wives, Give your very best to your husbands. Give your, don't save yourself for anybody else or anything else. Give your best to your husbands. Don't give your best to your kids. Don't give your best 
to your friends. Don't give your best to two hours of scrolling Facebook night after night when your husband needs your affection and he needs your attention. Give him your best. There are unmarried men and women in our congregation. And I know the world tells you that as long as you love her or you love him, that it's okay as long as you're in love. The problem is that's not the standard of God's word. In Hebrews 13.4, he says, marriage is honorable in all, which means if you agree to it and she agrees to it, there's no boundaries inside the covenant of marriage. And that will save all that for a class so we don't move from PG-13 to R. But understand, marriage is honorable in all things. And the bed undefiled. But, he says, everything outside of that falls under the judgment of God. If you have somebody that you deeply love and they deeply love you and you believe this is God's man or God's woman, get married. We have 10 pastors on staff. We can do it at the drop. We, we can make the marriage happen at the drop of a hat, right? We can take care of this. Get married. You say, well, we want to take 10 years and see if we're compatible for one another. There's no such thing as a married couple who are compatible. There's not. <laughs> Ask Pastor Ted in our counseling office. There's no such thing. I've been married 17 years, and my wife is awesome and wonderful in every way, but I've been waiting for her to be perfectly compatible to me, and she's been waiting for me, and it's never going to happen. You're two sinners living in the same house. You're going to have to apply the gospel to one another and give each other grace every day. God says, stop it. It's not glorifying to him. And it's not helpful to your soul. He says sexual immorality and impurity, just a general idea of anything that's morally unclean. It could be your art. It could be your entertainment. Just a lifestyle of your jokes. He says put away passion. Put to death passion, lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In Matthew 5, which again I think Paul's quoting the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Now when I'm talking to men, I don't say, hey men, do you struggle with your thought life? That's like asking you, if you live in West Virginia, have you ever seen a mountain, right? If you're a dude and you're breathing, you probably struggle with your thought life. But what we can re remember is that temptation in and of itself is not sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, we're all tempted. There's no temptation taking you, but such that's common to man. We're all tempted, but it's when we entertain the temptations that then they bring forth sin. God says, fight. God says, kill it. He continues, and he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Take them off like a dirty coat. Fight it daily. 
And he says, put away also these respectable sins, anger, wrath, that's the outburst of anger, malice, that's when anger becomes violent, slander and obscene talk, that's when anger becomes violent (coughs) with your tongue. And he says, put all these away, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices. Have you ever noticed that these things tend to be progressive and they usually come combined with others? You know, for instance, when a man decides to cheat on his wife, it's not like he just wakes up one day and says, today I'm going to cheat on my wife. But it starts with the little white lies. And then it starts with your own private maybe computer habits or phone habits. And, and then it starts with, well, I'm just hanging out with somebody else. I know, it's, I know it's somebody from the opposite sex, but she just makes me feel good. And then the next thing you know, you justify it in your mind. I deserve this. My spouse isn't giving me what I need. Therefore, I can do whatever. And God says, do not play with this. Do not try to play with fire. Do not keep it as your little pet. But he says, put it to death. If you've ever watched The Walking Dead, think of it like Negan with his baseball bat, right? You go into your life and you say, whatever it takes, I am going to put a stop to this. If it's telling somebody, I'm going to tell somebody. If it's telling my spouse or telling my best friend, or if it's unplugging or putting some boundaries on what I can see or do or go, if you are a Christian, put away evil deeds. That's the first step to growing in Christ. He gives us the second half, the other side of the coin to growing in Christ, starting in verse number 10. Number two, we see, how do we grow in Christ? If we're really Christians, what will we do? Well, we'll try to live and love like Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. We'll try to live and love like Jesus. In verse 10, he says, You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. When you became a Christian, you put on a new nature. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, all things that passed away, behold, all things are become new. So on one hand, this is a statement of reality. You received a new heart the moment you put your faith in Christ. But because we still live in these bodies of flesh, these aren't our new bodies yet, we still struggle with temptation and sin, all of us. And so he says, not only is it a reality, but you need to practically every day make choices to put on good things. And he's going to begin to tell us what this looks like. Uh, He tells us in verse 11, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, that's a deal with racism. Put away racism, put away prejudice, put away superiority. Put on then these things. As God's chosen ones, verse 12, holy and beloved, put on a compassionate heart, put on kindness, 
Put on humility. Put on meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. There's the word again of an overcoat. Take off the dirty jacket. You put on a clean jacket. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Verse 16, here's a really practical way you can live out the Christian life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Just be in the Bible. Listen to the Word. Read the Word. Teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. Singing psalms. This is where church comes in. And hymns and spiritual songs. All different kinds of songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, interestingly, every one of these commands are to be lived out in community with other people. It is impossible to live any of these commands truly by yourself, which is why the church is called to be the church. I used to think I was a humble person until I had a family. I used to think I was a kind person even before I was married until I jumped into a community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's easy for us to think we have these licked, but when we're called to forgive, when somebody sins against us, it gets messy. But all the gospel is made that much more beautiful. You know, this uh, this morning and every Sunday going forward, we plan to have a Bible center in five. That means that right down front on my left side after the service, if you're interested in getting connected to Bible Center Church, one of our staff is going to be down here. It could just super quick, five minutes, can tell you ways to jump in and ways to connect. But I want to tell you that if you become a part of Bible Center, you're becoming a part of broken people. That doesn't mean you join the church. Maybe it's just you jump into a group or you want to find out where you can serve or what kind of groups are for you. But the more you jump in, you're going to find that we're a broken mess of people. But through our brokenness, the gospel can shine so much brighter. And so he tells us we're called to put on, to live and love like Jesus. Lastly, why is this so important? What's the big deal about all these things? What's at stake? Well, first of all, your happiness is at stake. All the way back, and I've just pulled out three things. There's probably at least a dozen. But back up in verse 2, he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Why are we so serious about you living the Christian life? It's because your happiness is at stake. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. We could stop the message and say the reason we want you to put away sin and put on virtue and put on godly ethics is simply for the glory of God. We could stop there. But he doesn't stop there. He says he wants your affection. He wants your joy. He wants your heart. 
We think that God is trying to limit us from having happiness and joy and affection. But actually, he says, I want you to have life and to have it more abundantly. And the abundant life doesn't mean you get to throw off the Bible and throw off your commitments, but it means as I serve where God has called me to serve through the hardness and through the suffering, he will give me eternal joy. He calls us to this because of our happiness. Why else is this message important? Well, verse 6, because it could mean or not mean heaven for others. Our happiness for me, but also heaven for others is at stake. Verse 6, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why do we live godly lives? It's because as we live godly lives, we show the world that heaven matters, Jesus matters, and we want them to go there too. But when we compromise and live for ourselves and indulge our flesh and do what we want to do, we might as well just grab other people and pull them away from the stream of heaven. Yes, I know that only the gospel saves. And I know that God is sovereign and I don't quite understand how that works. But what I do know is this. The Apostle Paul wrote to the early church and he says, don't do these things. Because as you're in Colossae, as you do these things, you are becoming a billboard for the wrath of God. And it doesn't fit who you are. So heaven is at stake for others. When you're going through the Rolodex of your mind of all the reasons to stop doing the sins that you're doing, let this come up on one page. It doesn't have to be the only reason or the primary reason, but let it come up on one page. And then lastly, why is this important? It's because of the harmony from the church. In verse 14, he says, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's for the harmony of the church. You know, again, I mentioned a moment ago, we are broken people. It became apparent to me how broken we were about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when our staff went on a, a little one-day excursion, like a three-hour tour to Gilligan's Island is what it looked like. Somebody had a boat. Somebody in the church allowed us to uh, use their boat and to go out for the day. We were looking for a way to save money this year and not go out on a, a long uh, two-day staff retreat. But hey, how can we just stay in the city? And so we spent a day out on the river just kind of hanging out. There's a few folks that couldn't make it. And spending a day with our staff, I learned how, how broken we really are. We actually just about died. No joke, we really did just about die. We were up above the 35th Street Bridge, just above Canal City, and we were anchored. And a barge was coming our way that we, we didn't see. I was with uh, the captain, the guy who owned the boat. A few of us were down below deck finishing our lunch. And Michelle Thompson hollers from the top deck. She says, uh, there's a barge coming our way. We're like, okay, so we finished our sandwich, finished our lunch, and walk upstairs. And sure enough, there was a barge coming right at us. Now, pastors can exaggerate, so I'm going to try not to do that. I am telling you, it might have been maybe 50, 70 yards away, and it was coming right at us. It was a big like construction barge, 
It had a big crane on the front of it, a big like concrete mixer. And the guy, the, the guy who was running the boat couldn't see us. And evidently the person who was supposed to be out front wasn't out front. We found out later when it passed us, he was leaning against the captain's window just talking, having a good time. They would have plowed us. So the boat was, the barge's lip was higher than the boat. And so we run up to the top deck. We see this barge. The guy who's running the boat jumps up, lays on the horn. I'm convinced he laid on the horn, first of all, to get the barge's attention. Secondly, so you couldn't hear what all the people were saying and screaming at the barge. And and amazing things happen. For instance, John King, he's away doing a a wedding this weekend, but so I can pick on him. John like jumps overboard. He's like our executive pastor. And and he jumps overboard. Come to find out, he jumped into the other boat to save the other boat. I look back and Pastor Mike Graham's like on the jet ski trying to get the jet ski started. And, And my favorite was Pastor Richard Thompson. No joke. Richard is standing with his life vest on the side of the boat watching the barge. Later, we asked him, Richard, what are you doing? He said, I already had my exit plan set. (laughs) Richard, you're the only one on the boat with a spouse. Where'd responsibility go? We had a lot of fun that day. We were out jet skiing, story after story, to watch Paula Tony get skidded across the river like a rock was hilarious. Richard takes me out on a jet ski. We're doing like 60 mile an hour, over 60. And he leans back and hollers. He says, now I'm going to turn you like a dime. I'm going to stop on a dime. I scream back, no, you're not going to turn on a dime. We had a lot of fun. But it just occurred to us as we sat and talked, you know, we're all, we're all broken. We're all growing. And we need to show each other a lot of grace. And I'm asking you as a church to live the Christian life for the sake of your happiness, for the sake of heaven, for the people in Charleston who don't yet know Jesus, and for the sake of the harmony of this body. Live, live for eternity. Live your life like you have life eternal.